Tavian's Praise Podcast, hosted by Matt and Lori Crouch, where you will hear interviews with some of your favorite Bible teachers, pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. On today's show, guest host Bobby Schuler talks with author, Bible teacher, and pastor of Bridgetown Church, John Mark Comer. They discuss who God is, who he's not, and the staggering implications of who you are as a result. Welcome to Praise. We're so glad you're joining us today. You know, we just believe that if you're watching, God wanted you to watch. We think that whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're facing, you don't have to face it alone. And here at TBN, we just want you to know that we believe in you, that God isn't hanging your past over your head. We believe you're not what you do, what you have, or what people say about you, that you're beloved sons and daughters of God. I'm Bobby Schuler. I'm the host of Hour of Power here on TBN, and it's such a joy for me to be here to interview one of my very good friends, John Mark Comer. Yeah, so good to be with you, Bobby, and hello to all of you in TBN. So happy to be here. It's really awesome. Just a part of his bio, John Mark Comer is a pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. That's right. He and his wife, Tammy, have three kids, Jude, Moses, and his little girl, Sunday. Mm -hmm. Before planting Bridgetown, John Mark was the lead pastor of a suburban megachurch. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before that, he played in a band. A band? A band. That was quite a while ago now. But okay, yes, cool. And John band. Mark has a master's degree in biblical and theological studies from Western Seminary and is the author of Loveology, My Name is Hope, Garden City, and his most recent book we're going to talk about today, God Has a Name. So right. welcome, John. We're so yeah, glad you're here. Yeah, it's so good to be here. I'm just happy to be with you and, of course, an honor to be on the show, but I just love to hang out with you. You're such a delight and you bring a lot of joy. Thanks, man. Everywhere well, you go. Anecdotally, John Mark and I have been friends for years now. We met in New York City. Yeah, that's the, right. The, uh, you may not remember this at the Biologas yeah, conference. Yeah, that's right. I that I'm pretty sure that. you broke into. I think you. Yeah, and you no, and Dave I did. Lomas. I, I did not. But Dave Lomas, uh, Dave Lomi, if you're watching, he I think he snuck me in. It was like somebody canceled. It's an invite only event. Okay, that's cool. And it's basically a bunch of you know movers and shakers like Bobby over here, and I'm the not famous person, but I was friends with a few of them, and they snuck me in. It was amazing. I remember So it, it was really cool. That was actually, I think, my first or second time to New York City ever. Yeah. So it was an impactful time for me. We had a chance to connect, and after what that, you came city. down and went to Disneyland. You came and preached at Shepherd's Grove. Yeah. And I think we bonded over Dallas Willard, who's Absolutely. a Christian philosopher that we both love, and you spent you know a year or two of your life with, yeah. and yeah. I never got to meet, but his writings have really shaped the way I follow Jesus. So we'll talk a lot about this, but one of the things I really love is how effectively your ministry is reaching not only millennials, but I would I would say progressives in a, in a town like Portland. Yeah. You do a good job of bringing, I mean, for lack of a better word, an orthodox, biblical, Jesus-centered yeah. message that's yeah. not, you know, that that's not rel- relativistic. You have real principles, and yet you have just a soft, genuine, gentle heart. And like one of the things I would love to hear from you as we get into this today is how, how do we do that well? One of the things that is so interesting about your story is, I mean, you were involved. I mean, you got you started pretty early, didn't you? Yeah. You mean in pastoring? Yeah, pastoring. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, started working on, so my dad's a pastor, yeah. grew up in the church, grew up kind of behind the scenes of the church. I, some of my earliest memories are sitting in the back of elders meetings, you know, drawing pictures and coming for, you know, pre-church prayer with the elders and, like, you know, the only people that show up for seven in the morning prayer or whatever, which in our church was not a lot of people. Sure. And so I grew up in that, which I'm actually really grateful for. And then, yeah, my dad and I co-planted a church when I was 23 years old. Your new church now, Bridgetown. Yes. And, uh, and tell me a little bit, like, one of the, so th- that church is going well. One of the things that really launched And you- basically that was our location in the city when I kind of demoted myself for all good reasons. We yeah. said, hey, let's just kind of let each location become its own church. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I'll take the smaller one in the city. Now they're cool. all, we have four separate churches. They're all healthier than so ever. So one of the things that's cool is that your church is, is doing so well with millennials, which yeah. is that generation that isn't that interested in church, in yeah. institutional church, in locational church, and yet you're able to reach that generation in what I would consider probably the only town that's harder than L.A., Portland. I mean, I can't imagine doing ministry in Portland. Yeah. And God's blessing it. And uh, a big part of that was this Loveology thing. Hmm. This, this is your first big breakout book and uh, where you weren't afraid to discuss some of the, this big taboo subject, sex, yeah. love, marriage, and to address it from a biblical standpoint. And, uh, and now you're, you've written this new book, God Has a Name, which has a lot to do with, I mean, you, you said it earlier, you know, it's, we say it a lot, but just our personal relationship with God, yeah. that he offers us this name. So that's why you're here today. And I want to, I've read this book. It is amazing. Thank you. And if you're watching today, my name is Bobby Schuler, by the way. Thank you for joining us on Praise. And I'm here with John Mark Comer, the author of Loveology, and now his new book, God Has a Name, which really talks about the Hebrew roots of knowing God personally yeah. as a people. So let's start a little bit there. Why is it a big deal that God has a name? Yeah, well, I mean, our mutual hero, Dallas Willard, had that great line that we live at the mercy of our ideas. Yeah. And nowhere is that more true than our ideas about God. A.W. Tozer, who was this famous mid-century pastor from a generation or two ago, said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because we tend, he said, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God, wow. which is basically a way of saying that we become like our image of God. What comes to mind when you think about God will shape you, for better or for worse, mm -hmm. into the man or the woman that you become because you become like what you worship. And that can be a great yeah. thing yeah. if you worship Jesus of Nazareth and the God that we read about through the scriptures and you read it right, it can be a really unhealthy or even toxic thing if you're off in what you believe or think about God. So as a Christian, if you view God as angry, wrathful, bigoted, all this bigoted yeah, racist, yes, it's gonna shape you. Yeah. Or on the flip side, I live in Portland, so that's much mm -hmm. more rare. You yeah. know? In my world, it's all about the firm rainbows and everything and, and happy. rainbows. Everybody's yeah. happy and love is, ha has been redefined as tolerance, yeah. you know, and what's good for you is good for you and there's no right and there's no wrong yeah. and it's be true to yourself and follow your heart and all of that. If that's what you think, God, he's a good, wealthy bohemian from the left coast and a good progressive, yeah. that will shape you into that, yeah. you know? Um, if you think of God as just a life coach or just there to make your life better and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, that will shape you into that, you yeah. know? Or even if, what about people who don't believe in God or like, you know, you have the atheist or, or people who, I mean, there's idolatry yes, is still alive. Absolutely. Then God, the person of God and the person of Jesus has to be replaced by the ideology of atheism and a life with no meaning, with no purpose. It leads you to social Darwinism. It leads mm -hmm. you to just this utilitarian, like dog eat dog survival of the fittest kind of approach to life and yeah. relationships. And I'm not saying all atheists are like that. I know some atheists that are quite kind and sure. loving, but they even have to recognize that personality and disposition is in spite of their atheism, not because of it. <laughs> That's a good line. So you become like, you become like the God you worship. So, so the, I mean, the obvious question is then, Pastor, yeah. um, what is God like? What is the God that we ought to believe in? Yeah. Well, okay. So 
little bit of backstory there. One kind of key moment, I've been following Jesus as long as I can remember, grew up in the church, my dad's a pastor. One key moment for me in my relationship to God was a number of years ago, it was actually, I was in the seminary class with Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's become a mentor of mine, theologian. And he kept coming back to this kind of, to me, obscure, it's not obscure, but to me, obscure passage in the book of Exodus, yeah. where Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and there's that famous story where Moses says, you know, show me your glory. Yeah. And God kind of says, no, you can't take that yet. But God instead says, I will come down and I will proclaim my name. And so Moses is there, he's on the mountain, he's ready, he's waiting. And then we read that God proclaimed his name and it's Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord is how it's translated, but it's a proper name in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punished the children and the children's children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth generation. Now, I'd read that before. I'd read the Bible quite a few times. Sure. But I did not realize until sitting there in seminary, Dr. Gary Bashir, who just kept coming back to it, that is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Wow. Meaning, from there to the right in the library of Scripture, the writers of the Bible circle back to that more and quote it and allude to it and lament it. Jonah's angry about it, like yeah. argue with God over it. Like why are you being so merciful? Yes, God? exactly. Yeah, Which yeah. is just fascinating. It's a whole yeah, side, yeah. fascinating side tangent there. But more than any other scripture in all of mm -hmm. the Bible. So that is basically ground zero for a theology of God. Yeah. But what is so fascinating about this passage in Exodus is that it's not how most of us in the Western world think about God. Yeah. So if I just asked you, you know, tell me who God is, most of us were raised in what in seminaries called systematic theology, which is basically this kind of Greek philosophy way of thinking about God. So you have God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, God is omniscient, omnis, he knows yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. God is omnipotent, he's all yeah. powerful, all of, for the most part, stuff I believe. Yeah. But when God, when God, when you ask God, tell me about who you are, yeah. he doesn't start with about how he's the most powerful being in all the world and he knows everything there is to know and there's nowhere he's not and yeah. he's all perfect. All of that stuff's true, but to God, that's not the most important thing. He starts with what we would call his personality, yeah. you know, or his sure. character. What is he like? And, mm -hmm. and that, for me, was a game changer. And you asked earlier, why, why is it significant that God has a name? And often people think that's like a play. Well, it's Jesus or it's God. Actually, it's not what I mean. It's Yahweh. Is the, yeah. There is a Hebrew yeah. proper name for God. And it's not sure. God, yep. which is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And you have to think about why does God need a name in the first place? What's wrong yeah. with God? Yeah. And in English and in Hebrew, God is this kind of junk drawer word that out there somewhere is some kind of a creator being of the cosmos, you know, and I believe that. But that doesn't get you to a person. Yeah. Yahweh is a proper name. And the biggest takeaway from all of this, that God has a name, is that God is a person. Yeah. By person, I don't mean a, a man or a woman or a human being. Yeah. I mean, he is a relational being yeah. who wants to relate to you. What I hear you kind of saying, John Mark, is it's like very often as pastors or Christians, we oftentimes get, get hung up on these omnis and yes. about who God is. Which but are not bad. Sure, of they're course, they're important, the most important, but they're thing. not the most important thing. So it's almost like, I think you used, you used this analogy about your wife, but it's something like, if somebody asked me about John Mark Comer, I could yes. say, well, he's six foot three and he's got blonde hair and he lives yes. in Portland. You rattle off a, facts. Yeah, and that's kind of what we do with God, but it's like, you don't really, but, I, but tell me about like his personality, what he's like. Is he, he's loving, he's yes. caring, he's introverted, he's yes. friendly, he loves coffee. And exactly. they're different 
And this is what we miss out. So how does... And even what you call somebody yeah. says something about the depth of your relationship with God. Yeah. So, you know, like if you... This, if I called you Mr. Comer, that'd you be called me Ms. Comer, that would mean that we either don't know each other or you called me sir or even yeah. if I called you reverend, which is a yeah. term of respect, but sure. you're my friend. I call you Bobby. Yeah. I don't call you the reverend pastor, yeah. you know, not... So it's not almost like God, you, but it's because like, we have depth of relationship. Can I almost say then it's almost an it's almost an irony that in the Old Testament we translate Yahweh as Adonai, the yeah, Lord. Yeah, and I make that point. I have to be sensitive there, but we translate a proper name with a title. Yeah, that's right. And so calling God the Lord isn't bad per se, but it's not a good translation. That's not yeah. the question. And it's a little bit like me calling my wife Tammy. The wife, the or wife, Mrs. Comer, my wife, yeah, or the wife. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. not the language of intimacy. Do you think and we should? Do you think when we pray, we should say Yahweh? I think I I think God is a relational being whose baseline emotion is compassion. Yeah, and I don't think we need to get hung up on the right words. Okay, all right. But I think that when we pray, we should pray as a child to a father. Yeah, and it, we should pray from a a depth of relationship, intimacy, safety, abandon, freedom not in a formal, not in a disrespectful way, but neither in a formal way. There's a famous uh, Tim Keller uh, quote, and it's something like, nobody wakes up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water except his child. Only a child has that kind of access. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, in that passage that I quoted, where he proclaims his name, and it's Yahweh, Yahweh, which is repeated, and the first line is compassionate. Yeah. And compassionate in the Hebrew in particular is a feeling word. It's yeah. about how God feels. Yeah. And this word compassionate literally comes from the same Hebrew word. The root word is for a female womb. Mm-hmm. And it's a word that's used all through the scriptures for not Wait, just mothers. Wait, say that again. The word is used for a female so womb? So the root word for uh-huh. compassion, it's rachum, is okay. the Hebrew word. The root word is literally a female womb. Okay. It's an adjective. So, but the root word is female womb. And so the idea is that the, it's the feeling, rachum, is the feeling that a mother has toward her infant child. I but see. it's also used for parents in general. So it's used all through the Psalms, used through Proverbs, used through the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, for the feeling of a father or a mother toward their son or daughter. So the first thing you learn about God, after you learn he's Yahweh, he's a person, he's not an idea mm-hmm. or a concept or a force, you know, yeah. he's not Star yeah. Wars or yeah. whatever, like, he's <laughs> a, he's a, I love Star I Wars, Star Wars. he's not a force, yeah. he's not an energy, yeah. he's not a feeling even, he's not an idea or a doctrine in a mm-hmm. textbook, he is a person, a relational yeah. being, he's our dad. who wants to relate to you, and yeah. then the first thing you learn is he wants to relate to you like a dad, yeah. or like a yeah. mom, and you are like his child, which yeah. means his baseline emotion toward you yeah. is compassion. So that's the beauty if you're a parent, you know that some people come from But what about what about that second part of that verse you just quoted where I mean he sounds really vengeful, wrathful who yes. will not what does it leave the guilty unpunished, unpunished. and yes. will and will punish the third and the fourth generation and all that. Yes. What does that say about about, I mean, it sounds like yes. really dark. Really kind of. dark and callow, and at first yeah. you want to kind of skip over it. That's actually my favorite part, to be all in Okay, honesty. tell me why. Well, okay, there's a lot there. We don't have time for the whole thing. First off, there's a lot in between compassionate and punishes the children and the children's children for the yeah. you know, parents yeah. of the third and fourth generation. There's a lot in between about compassion and mercy and all of this stuff. But um, so after you've laid the groundwork of God's baseline emotion is mercy, long story short, what that's saying is that God is merciful, but he's also just. 
<laughs> and so the ESV, I think, has the best translation of the Hebrew there. It's by no means will he clear the guilty. And the idea there isn't that God will wink at sin. Yeah. Uh, oh, genocide, no big deal. Ah, oh, racism, that's not that big of a problem. Ah, yeah. oh, boys will be boys, whatever. Oh, that's sad. You know, there's murder and violence in the world. What a bummer. He won't, he's not like yeah. that. He's merciful. Yeah. His baseline emotion toward you is compassion. He's a father, he's a mother toward you. But he's also just. And he also is after a world with no evil, no injustice, no racism, no sexism, no poverty, yeah. no violence, no war, no death. Like that's his end goal. And he will not rest day and night until we get to that end goal, what Jesus called the age to come. Mm -hmm. So there's, on one hand, it's just saying there's, that God is both merciful and he's just, but it's better than that. So it's so fun. So the cool thing, and I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit. So cool. just let me nerd out on you. I'm a little <laughs> bit of a Bible nerd. I'm sorry. No problem. So remember that when you read the English Bible, you're reading a translation. And it's yeah. actually great. The NIV is a great translation. Most of them are all great. Um, but you are reading a translation. It's not, there's no such thing as a word for word. That's a myth that you hear all the time. And in the Hebrew, that word generation to the third and fourth generation is not there. It was actually added by the translators to make sense of this kind of awkward Hebrew idiom to the third and the fourth, which we don't have. I don't yeah. say like, how, how long are you going to do it? Ah, to the third or the fourth. We don't say that. It's not an English it. saying. It is a Hebrew oh, idiom. So you don't and think it, it means to the generations then? Well, let me keep going. Yeah, sure. So it's a Hebrew phrase that just means a little bit, like to yeah. the third, to the fourth, just a little bit or a little bit longer. Yeah. And so what scholars point out is that the word generation is fine there, but if you insert the word generation after to the third and fourth, you need to also insert the word generation after to thousands. Yeah. Because there is, it's basically poetry in Hebrew. Yeah. And it says showing love to thousands. Thousands of generations. And you should either translate it showing love to thousands uh -huh. and punishing the sin to the third and the fourth. Mm -hmm. Or showing love to thousands of generations mm -hmm. and punishing sin to the third and fourth generation. Got it. Right? So you, you get, it's a spatial So it's imagery. like three or four on this side and a thousand on this side. So what I say yeah. is like imagine Lady Justice. Like yeah. remember the scale, yeah. the like, yep, justice yep, yep. is blind thing or whatever. And on one side you have God's mercy and on the other side you have justice. Because there's a tension there, right? Yeah. If God is by nature I mean, truly, merciful, it's, just, it's wrath. I mean, but the world is full of evil. Yeah, yeah. And so there's God's wrath toward evil yeah. and how wrong the world has gone and how yeah. people are hurt and oppressed and violence and all of that. Yeah. And there's a tension there between like, how does God relate to the world through mercy or through justice? The idea is that when there's tension between mercy and justice, on the justice side, it's to the third and the fourth. On the mercy side, it's thousands. So like God's, when there's that tension, it's freighted to the side of mercy. Yeah. If you're listening to this and it's kind of interesting to you, you know, one of the great things about John Mark Comer's writings is that it is, it does have deep biblical knowledge, but it's super accessible. Maybe you're like, I didn't really go to, you know, college. I don't, I didn't go to seminary. It's not a seminary work. He's able to take some of these really deep ideas like this taking some of this Hebrew and, in fact, we've put a video together, we'll show you in here in just a second, but he's able to take these kinds of ideas and make it so tangible on like why this is important. You know, when we talk about, we talk about, you know, generations and stuff, a lot of times we in the charismatic tradition can hear like, oh, if I messed up, God's gonna curse my grandkids right. and my great grandkids. Not at all That's not what, at all what it's saying. saying. It's saying that for a thousand generations, maybe, he's going to yeah. bless you compared to yeah. the wrath against evil for three or four generations. And, and even there, can I cut in? Yeah. Even there, it's not saying that God will punish you for your dad's or your grandparents' sin. Yeah. It's not what it's saying. Yes. Like, that doesn't even make sense because God actually clearly says the exact opposite multiple times through sure. Exodus, the same book. Yeah. God says, I will not punish you for your parents' sin. It's more like, at one level, the sins of the parents have consequences for the children. And we all know mm -hmm. this. 
Um, I know this as a dad. I'm not perfect. I make yeah. mistakes. Yeah, and course. my children suffer from the consequences at a more dramatic level if I get addicted to drugs and I start a meth lab and go Breaking Bad or whatever in my living room and I get caught by the police, hypothetical scenario, trust me, I promise this is not true, <laughs> caught by the police and hauled off to jail, yeah. my kids will suffer the consequences for my sin. Sure. And even my grandkids potentially, yeah. they will get sucked into the foster care system to yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, some of you are watching and you know that, you're like, I'm suffering yeah. because of mistakes that were made by my parents or my grandparents, right? Yeah. So actually the hope there is that your past does not have to define your future. Mm -hmm. That even if you are there suffering from the sin of your parents or your grandparents or even your great-grandparents, the idea is that God takes sin seriously in every, each and every generation, mm -hmm. and he will not stop until it's rooted out of your family line. And actually, that's a good, beautiful, healing, hopeful mm -hmm. thing, that your last name does not have to be your inheritance. If what you were handed is unhealthy or toxic or broken, you can break free of generational sin that goes back for generations, for decades, if not for centuries. Mm -hmm. You can break free into a new family, the family mm -hmm. of God, where you experience God as your father, God as your compassionate father. If you don't know what a compassionate father is like because your father was abusive or you never had a father, or he's just non-existent, um, you can have a new father. You can experience the compassion of God for you. We hope you're enjoying the Praise Podcast. We'll get back to the interview soon. So we've spent a lot of time talking about like God's personality and how, yeah. you know, a lot of times we get this idea like the Old Testament God as this mean God and the right. New Testament God as merciful, but it's the same All God. All of a sudden became nice. I know it drives yeah. pastors crazy. When, up on. So, what, so, I mean, I love how you're showing on the Jewish, the Jewish sort of telling of God's story. Um, that that merciful that merciful part is so much bigger. God's mercy towards us, His right. love towards us, is so much greater uh, than than His wrath towards evil. What does that have to do for our daily life? If you're just like for the, for that single mom who's who's watching right now, or that that guy who is just really you know wrestling with addiction and wants to beat it. I mean, what what does this say for the everyday person that's struggling with everyday things? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. Human, there are seven something billion human beings on the planet and we all have our own approach to God, relationship or lack of relationship with God. I think some people need to hear more about the compassion of God that you know, there are people that just have this innate sense that's not true that God is this grumpy, old, mean, maybe your father was mean, and so when you hear God as a father, you imagine he's just always kind of disappointed in you. He's this perfectionistic, mm -hmm. angry, impatient, quick, to just waiting to fly off the handle. He's disappointed in you. I think a lot of people just feel like God must be up in heaven just saying, really? That's the best you can do, really? Again, it's like, you know, when parents, one of the worst things that parents ever do to their children is, how could you, and point the finger and, and release shame into their yeah. child? You know, yeah. what were you thinking? You yeah. know, yeah. as if it was some rational decision, and that's why yeah. they did whatever they did, you know? And so often, because we're parented that way, we think that's how God feels about us. We make a mistake, we have a thought that, you know, and how could you, and you're so much better, and what were you doing? And God is yeah. just, you know, and you need to forget, you need to remember that's not who God is. Yep. God is not waiting there for you to mess up, disappointed in you, perfectionistic. Not because he doesn't take sin seriously. He does. But out of love for you, yeah. if anything, when you sin, there's sadness on God's part far more than anger. God's default emotional position toward you is that of compassion. Then ironically, other people actually 
don't need to hear that so much. I and mean, we all need yeah, to hear that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But there are other people that almost have more of a sense of entitlement. Like, hey, yeah. I'm cool. Yeah. You know, like maybe I, I'm the snowflake child. Like yeah. I could do no wrong. I never got in trouble. I have permissive parents who just let me do whatever I want. And God can't really care about sin or whatever. You know, and this is yeah. more the world that I live in. Yeah. More the millennial world, the urban world. Most yeah. of my, you know, this is, this is actually more of a problem in the world that I live in now. How do you dress up, by the way? I mean, how, how pastorally do you say to the guy that's like, ah, that's fine. Like, from a Christian standpoint, how do you address that person? I mean, do you, do you preach? Like, do you get like Leonard Ravenhill on them? I mean, yeah. like, what do you do? You know? <laughs> Leonard Raven, I haven't heard that name in a long time. That's old school, like fire. I love fire Leonard Ravenhill, Hill, even though he's so. Uh, yeah, I read his stuff and I think, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. <laughs> I don't know if I'm yeah. saved. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I mean, one of the things you see even in that Exodus passage is you see God do both at the same time. Say, I'm compassionate and I'm just and I punish to the third and the fourth generation. So I think I'm always trying to say both messages, you know, yeah, because that's really any, where it is. Right? Anytime, unless if I'm in a one on one coffee, when I'm preaching a sermon, I'm talking to some people that are racked by guilt and shame and need yeah. to hear God's compassion and other people that have no aren't even listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and have entitlement and you know, and no conviction of sin and need to hear about like mm -hmm. God's wrath in the healthy sense, that God is after freedom and healing from sin in their life. So God has a name, his name is Yahweh and his name is merciful, but it's also yes. just. Yes. And how, one of the things I love that you write and talk about a lot is how this affects like our prayer life. Yes. So let's, let's talk really, about that. Like, at like the end of the day, personal, that's what it's all about. Yeah, so tell me about that. Yeah, you know, we have this, I grew up in a church tradition that I'm sure was similar enough to yours to where personal relationship with Jesus Jesus was like, that was a cliche. Yeah. And yeah, that's not a phrase used anywhere in the library of scripture, but it's used all the time in the kind of evangelical Western world. I have no problem with it. I actually don't think people have any idea the depth or the gravity or the weight of what is in that statement, a personal relationship with Jesus. There's so much more there. Mm -hmm. And I think actually a lot of us are scared of a personal relationship with Jesus, of an actually open, honest, in-depth, transparent. So when you think about this idea, okay, God is a name, meaning he's a person, not a human being, not a male or a female, but a person mm -hmm. who wants to relate to you, wants to be in relationship with you as a father to a child. Baseline mm -hmm. emotion is compassion, but yet he's God. I mean, you're not dealing with a bro across the street. Like, yeah. he's God. Yeah. Um, like, one of the main implications is, I think, for your prayer life. Yeah. And I think a lot of us, when we pray, we pray to an idea or a doctrine in a theology textbook yeah. more than to a person relationship, or we pray to this angry caricature to appease, yeah. or to this kind of cosmic Santa Claus that yeah. doesn't even care about sin, that just we want health and wealth from or yeah. whatever. And I think, you know, one of the great secrets that we don't talk about in the church is how boring prayer is for a lot of people. Totally. And, and how few people actually pray in the first place yeah. and don't enjoy it and feel like they sit down to pray and they just kind of, their mind goes all over the place and totally. they feel distracted and they feel bored I remember and they get nothing out of it. At our old church, I, there was a rumor, and I don't, still don't know if it's true, probably it wasn't, that our pastor would pray four hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I remember, this is Pastor Willie George at Church on the Move. This is, okay. I have no idea if that's true. That's what people used to say. And I if, remember- If there was a rumor about me that said that, I wouldn't correct it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, could be. Maybe. <laughs> Discipline of secrecy. But honestly, I when I heard that, I my first thought was what could you say for four, for four hours? hours? And one of, one of the things that I, and I know you, you're in the same boat of like 
of spiritual formation, yes. big admirer of Dallas Willard, is that so much of prayer isn't what we say as much as it is a conversation yes. and intimacy, like yeah. a spiritual intimacy with God. Like you Even can, what we feel before God. You can, can you pray for an hour and never say a thing? Absolutely. I so think, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, I, I agree. I, but I think that has a lot to do with what you're yes. saying here. I mean, one definition of prayer that I love is just whole person orientation to God. Yeah. You know, when Paul writes, pray without ceasing in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, what exactly does he mean? Does he literally mean pray 24 hours a day? In which case, you'd start. And even if you press through the boredom, mm -hmm. what, you make it to day three, four, and then you would die. You know? Yeah. So I think he's not... I think what he's saying is living with your whole person orientation to God, what Brother Lawrence, you know, called the practice of the presence of God, which, by the way, is the, the most widely read book outside of the Bible, written by a dishwasher, uneducated dishwasher in the back of the monastery. It. Tell me about that, that book. Yeah, if you, if you don't know Brother Lawrence, 16th century Parisian, we'll, we'll keep this tangent coming back, 16th century Parisian monk who devoted his life, dishwasher in the back of a mon monastery, yeah. not a priest, not a, uh, not a cleric, dishwasher, devoted his life to what he called the practice of the presence of God, what Paul called prayer, what Jesus called abiding in the vine. And, uh, and he basically wanted to spend every waking moment in the presence of God. Yeah. And so he devoted his life to this and became transformed by it. By the end of his life, word was out. People would travel from all over Europe, write letters from all over Europe to watch this man in the back of a kitchen for a monastery with a bunch of bachelors, you know, yeah. cook dinner, clean up dinner and just his joy. And at the end of his life, his letters were put together into a book. It's really more of a pamphlet than a book. You can read it in about 20 or 30 minutes. And he just has so many beautiful things to say about what he calls the practice of the presence of God. Life spent, I think Willard would say, in the Father's company. You know, yeah. Willard has that great quote. So Willard quote, actually, that I have on the inside of my closet wall that I read every single morning, not most mornings before I go to work where he just says that the first and most basic thing that we can and must do is to set God before our minds. Mm -hmm. And he writes that our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to God. So as you're driving to work in the morning, you're stuck in traffic, you're at the office or on the job site, or you're raising three little kids, or you're retired and you're going about your day, or you're at the golf course, or you know, you're eating lunch, whatever it is for you, just to direct and redirect your mind constantly to God. And then he has this metaphor of how a compass, the, the needle, if you think of a compass, it always goes back to north, yeah, right? Absolutely. And, and the goal is that as you practice the presence of God, as you organize your life around the spiritual disciplines, that your mind always goes back to God. It's like yeah. your mind and imagination is like the needle on a compass. Anytime you just, you're stuck at that traffic light <laughs> and you just get a quick second or there's a little lull in your inbox between emails or, you know, your two-year-old's asleep for yeah. 10 minutes or whatever, and you just have a little mental break, all of a sudden your mind just goes back to God. Wouldn't that's prayer. Yeah, and that's sometimes, great. And sometimes prayer for mm -hmm. me is just feeling in God's presence yeah. and just telling God how I feel. I'm sad right now. I'm anxious right now. I'm happy right now. I'm grateful right now. I'm angry right now. Feeling in God's presence, you know, intercession, asking God to do things is one type of prayer. It's a beautiful type of prayer. It's one of many. Prayer is just relationship with the Father. Wow. I'm Pastor Bobby Schuler, host of Hour of Power and pastor at Shepherd's Grove. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Pastor John Mark Comer, pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland. And he's written this great 
book, God Has a Name. I really recommend you check it out. You can get it anywhere books are sold right now. And it is such a deep, a deep but easy to consume, if I can use that word, you probably hate it. Yeah. An easy to consume um, book on some of these deep ideas about even how in the Old Testament, God is so merciful, so loving, and how like a loving father, he's always calling us back to back to where he is right. and to be with him. So I love just love what you guys are doing there at uh, Bridgetown. And it's, you know, one of the things that we were talking about in the car on the way over here is kind of like how you feel the Holy Spirit is sort of moving his direction about, you know, you care about your church and you do. I can tell you're, you're such a right. pastor at heart. But you also, and I think this is a good thing, have been realizing the importance of focusing on that, your your you know, one-on-one relationship with yeah. God, and that's becoming, from an Who emotional standpoint, yeah, totally. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think what we say, I was saying in the car, and I don't mean this to sound pious, and you might think this is unpious, but I'm really passionate about my church. I'm more excited about where we're at right now. We're in a really good season, mm-hmm. um, but I'm honestly more excited about my own apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth my own prayer life, my own transformation, than I am the church. Yeah. And I love to write books, and I'm excited about the new one, but I'm way more excited about the healing that God is doing in my marriage, my thought life, and my emotional health, you know? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, everything does come down to relationship with this God. We yeah. were made for relationship with God and with mm-hmm. each other. What is your? What do you do? I mean, you're, you're a pastor, but I mean, what do you do to grow in your relationship with God personally? Like, what are some things that yeah. you do that are really useful? And you talk about the disciplines and things like yeah. that. What are some of the- well, I mean, earlier we were chatting about, you know, three, four years ago, I had this kind of massive life change moment where I devoted yeah. myself, stepped down, went on a three-month sabbatical, started therapy, went through Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is a resource I highly recommend, and just made a number of changes to kind of, you know, I was in my mid-30s, and I realized I'm not becoming the person that I want to become. Mm-hmm. And so I need to kind of, like, this is my, this is my last chance, not last chance, this is a chance yeah. to wipe this, not wipe the slate clean, to <laughs> keep using all the wrong metaphors, to change trajectory, you yeah. know, yeah. and to kind of restart again, in a sense. And so basically, for the last three years, I've had three very simple goals. Slow down, simplify my life around the practices of Jesus, and make abiding my first and primary goal in life. So slow down. Well, first of all, that's the one that stood out the most to me because most pastors are not saying slow down. Most Christians are saying try harder, do more, do more. Yes. Let's start there. So slow down. Slow down. Um, You know... Dallas Willard, that we both love, famously once said to John Ortberg, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. Give the context to that story. Yeah, I think it's so it's actually my next book. It opens with this story, and I'm not even in the story, but I just love it so much. So Ortberg, John Ortberg, famous, world-famous Bible teacher, pastor, yeah. incredible man, had lunch with him recently. and just He'll be on oh. here. I'm interviewing him next month. Oh, are you serious? Praise, yeah. Oh, he's just a gem, just everything you'd dream he would be, you know? And so he calls up Willard. This is, I think, back in the 90s when Ortberg was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek, mm-hmm. one of the most influential churches in the world in Chicago, yeah. and famous Bible teacher, writer, all of, best-selling writer, all of that. And he calls up Willard and says, I'm just getting sucked into the megachurch busyness and insanity and stress and anxiety. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. How do I keep my soul alive? Or something. Yeah, the question yeah. was something like that. 
And what are he, some spiritual principles? Yeah, like something in, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, there's a long silence on the other side of the line. And then he has this line, with Willard, there was almost always a long silence. And, um, and then Willard said this. He just said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And Ortberg wrote it down. It's like, it's amazing. This is before Twitter. Otherwise, that would have broke the internet or I something. Know. And, uh, and then, and then Orp- he was like, what else? And what else? What else is there? You know, I was like, I'm ready. I have my notepad out. And then he said, there was another long silence. And then Willard said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I just, I'd never thought about that, that hurry and a life of speed. I live right in the city. I live right downtown. I walk on my bike everywhere. I'm raising three children. I'm leading a church. I'm writing books. I'm traveling. My life is mm-hmm. busy. Yeah. And um, the I, default today, you were saying, I mean, the default is... Anxiety, stress, everybody. Anxiety is the new normal. Yeah. We all are. We all have anxiety now. Yeah. Low grade yeah. anxiety, fatigue, burnout, exhaustion, yeah. busyness. How you doing busy? How you doing busy? How you doing yeah. busy? Yeah. That's the new normal. It's almost like if you'd say to someone, uh, I know you're busy, you're complimenting them. Yes. But if you're like, hey, let's do something, I know you're not very busy. It's almost like, like big, you're not that's very an important. Insult. Because busy is a moniker for important. Yeah. Alcoholism is one of the many sins that yeah. our culture doesn't want to call as sins. And we forget. You remember that saying back in the 90s and all like the parenting literature, love is spelled time, yeah. T-I-M-E? Yeah. And I think we forget that any healthy relationship takes a lot of time. Yeah. Whether it's between me and my 11-year-old boy or my wife and I yeah. or God and I. If you want a relationship with God, you, you have to take time. It takes yes. time. You have to put time right. into it. And so that means you have to slow down. Yeah. So for me, the connection between hurry and spirituality was just eye-opening. So I'm trying to slow down. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm trying to simplify my life. So yeah. do less, buy less, own less, shop less, go less, just do less. The two are related, aren't they? They're very Not related. Because if you're going to slow down, that means you have to do less, do less things. Because yeah. the reason we're, we're such in a hurry all the time is we're trying to do too much. We don't recognize we're human. There's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. And we have our 60, 70, 80 years if we're lucky. And then a, we're done. There was a story, I forget who it was between, but there was a mentor and a protege. It wasn't Dallas, but it was someone else. And he said, how do I walk with Jesus? And the mentor said, you walk with Jesus at a walking pace. Exactly. So there's this like, we are going, it's like we're trying to go faster than God. But you look at what the enemy does. The enemy does everything in a hurry. In a hurry, yep. Overnight quick. God is and you look at rush. everything that God does, the, the pace of a tree growing, the pace of the tide rising, the pace of the earth rotating. This yeah. is his creation. It has his ideas and creativity all over it. And then you look at our own selves as a human, that the, I think the greatest of God's creation, the human yeah. soul, that it develops slowly, it learns slowly through experience. We're the slowest of all, yeah. all God's creatures. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, have you noticed this, Bobby? Um, I don't, this is antidotal. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But in my experience, people that are older in the way of Jesus, whether they're older by age or not, people that have been following Jesus for a very long time, for decades, and who have been transformed, spiritual mm-hmm. formation, all of that, I've started to notice a lot of times I'll, I'll say, hey, can I get coffee with you? Whether it's a John Orberg or whoever, you know. And often we'll take a walk or a stroll, and I've noticed they walk slow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just because they, like, have asthma or they're older or they're out of shape. I actually think that something about following Jesus has made them slow down. I, I don't think Jesus was a power walker. Yeah, <laughs> they've learned to walk in the easy rhythms yeah. of grace. Easy rhythms of grace in the Matthew 11 translation. Okay, so you have, you have you slow down your life. This, yep, slow this, down. You simplify yeah. my life around the practices of Jesus, which is what I call them, 
That um, was the third one. That was the second one. Okay, simplify yep. around the practice of Jesus. Yep, which, uh, you know, in, in the language of church history, the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. So how do you actually do relationship with Jesus? Well, it's not that different from how I do relationship with my wife. A lot of it comes down to rhythms. Yeah. So every Friday morning, I have Friday off, our kids are in school, we go on a brunch date. Yeah. And we have that anchor point to look forward to. Yeah. And in the summer when our kid's out of school, Thursday night, my parents watch the kids. Every night after dinner when we put the kids to bed, I sit and chat with my wife on the couch. You yeah. know, Once a week we have Sabbath where we set aside an entire day just to rest and worship and be together as a family. My relationship with my wife we sleep next to each other in the same bed we you know what i mean that we yeah. eat meals together we so have it's like what kind of family. rhythms do you have with god then? yes so i do relationship my my i cow my calendar is really the way that i do relationship with my wife so that might have, sound cold and calculating no, i think it's great everything comes down to rhythm yeah everything. totally yeah and do, you, do you ever do that with god do you put like i'm going to pray at yes, friday at three yes. o'clock or whatever and that, and that's not to limit my yeah. relationship with God you to have, those it's moments. the minimum. You're going to have at least that It's much. again, Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. I'm yeah. practicing. I'm training and teaching my mind to go back to God. Yeah. Go back to God. So when I wake up and I set my alarm and I specifically don't turn on my iPhone until a set time after I've read my Bible and prayed, mm-hmm. I have that discipline there, but the discipline is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Like the end isn't, oh, I from 6 to 7.30, it was just me and Jesus. Like, who cares? Yeah. The end is, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, yeah. and I want to become an unhurried soul, and I want to be transformed, and I want to be full of the Spirit of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. I want this to permeate my personhood all through the day. And so I have a discipline, 6 to 7.30, every, you know, or whatever yeah, it is. totally. And I have Sabbath on the weekend, and I have once a month, I take a day just for silence and solitude. And these are disciplines, but they're all a means to an end. And the end is not the discipline. The end is relationship to Jesus and transformation into his image. And so Jesus showed us how to relate to the Father by how he lived. He would get up early and pray. He would Sabbath on the weekend. He would live simply. Jesus was not out buying and selling all the time. He didn't have 50 different pairs of shoes and yeah. four different cars and this collection <laughs> and that collection. Yeah. He lived very simply, clothes on his back. He enjoyed things. He enjoyed a good <laughs> meal. He enjoyed a good glass of wine. He, you know, at the end of the day when he was crucified, they tore his garment apart. It was a nice purple garment. Like he, he had things. He wasn't yeah. anti-thing. Yeah. But he lived so simply and so gratefully. And and that's just one example. He lived in community, not by himself. He'd regularly eat meals with other people that would pray to the Father. And so we see in Jesus how to do relationship with the God that is called Father. So you've got these, so, you know, you've got these first two things. Yes, slow down. Slow down. Simplify around the spiritual disciplines. And number three? Just make abiding in the vine the number one goal in my life. So I just figured, John chapter 15. These all seem like almost the same side of, uh, different sides of the same Kind of three ways of saying the same yeah. thing. But there's an order. Mm-hmm. If I don't slow down, yeah. I can't practice the spiritual disciplines because I'm too busy and too much of a rush. That's right. That's good. And if I don't practice the spiritual disciplines, then I can't retrain myself in a world of iPhone and Wi-Fi and distraction and noise and traffic and three little children and a job and this and that. I can't retrain myself to go back to God in my conscious awareness like all through the day and just to enjoy his company. And I'm telling you, the longer I follow, I'm 37, 
than following Jesus as long as I can remember. The best, in my humble opinion, the best part of following Jesus is Jesus. Yes. And I, and I know that sounds like a cliche and it's like a not, little trite. It's a great word. But I genuinely mean, like my, there's a lot I love about Jesus. I love being used of God. I love seeing yeah. people come to faith and I love teaching the Bible and I love mm-hmm. lots of things I love. I love, but my favorite thing is just to sit in the Father's company. You want to call that prayer? You want to call that sitting on my couch first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee and just feeling in God's presence? Mm-hmm. That's on, It's the highlight of my day. As a pastor, have you ever had times in your life where you you really, maybe you really wanted to connect with God, but you couldn't? Oh, all, maybe, the, all the time. Did you ever suffer from things like, you know, I know at one point, like anxiety, depression, and did you ever wonder, like, Am I really a Christian? If it, like I know, there's a lot of those types of things too. Yes. I mean, yeah, because yeah, don't hear me wrong. Like I wake up every morning and I just yeah, have pure yeah. glory, and I'm just sitting there at 6 a.m. in the dead of winter, just feeling happy. Like no, there. Are, did you ever? I still do. There are days yeah. when I wake up and I practice the disciplines we chatted about this at lunch, yeah. and they don't work. Yeah. And I don't feel God's presence. I don't hear God's voice. And instead, I'm yeah. stressed about this. Yeah. There are days when I'm full of joy. And days when I got over busy and I got hurried and I lose my temper with my children and I'm anxious about this thing at church and I'm not trusting God and mm-hmm. I'm human and I'm in process and change is slow and gradual and worth every step. So I don't mean to paint like this false idealism, you mm-hmm. know, but the way I have dealt with anxiety at a severe level in my past and still it's an ongoing limp that I walk with that Jesus is healing me from. But the way that you overcome anxiety or depression isn't to pop a pill, although there might be a place for medication, but it's not to pop a pill and just to keep going and distract yourself with Netflix or TV or social sure. media. Sure. It's to slow down. It's mm-hmm. to simplify your life around the way of Jesus, and it's to abide in the vine. And while there's not some quick, you know, our culture is such a quick fix kind of culture. Yeah. It's the Silicon Valley kind of, is there an app for that? It's so true. Like, what's the silver bullet? We, we, we grew there's up with, shame around that, isn't it? Like, yes. if there's, it's taking too long and... You know, one better. of the things about technology, and I'm not anti-technology, I have an iPhone, but technology trains you to believe a lie. Mm-hmm. And the lie is that life is fa- a good life is fast and easy. Because all you have to do is just download the app. Go to the app store. Download it. There's a website here. Just buy it for this you know, price. Read my book and your life will be like, hopefully it's a good book. It's not going to solve all of your problems and make your life a thousand times better. Hopefully it will help you move forward yeah. on the journey of apprenticeship. Well, but, I, I actually... but life, like a good life is actually... It's hard. It is hard. And it takes a long time. And but I it's will, worth it. I will add that the, that the books you read do make a difference. And I love the fact that in this book in particular, you really, you are talking about some of these issues and about this personal relationship with right. God. So. Right. Well, John Mark Comer, thank you so much. It's, it's been a such joy, a joy to be with you in with sunny you California. I, I am so thankful that you wrote this book. And I want to encourage any, if you're just joining us, I'm Bobby Schuler from Hour of Power. And we've been talking to John Mark Comer, pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. And he's written a book, God Has a Name. It's an awesome book. I've read it. And um, it is a perfect book if you want to sort of go deeper in your biblical knowledge. And it really will help you in your prayer life and in that like personal feeling towards God. So... John Mark, thank you so much Such for being here. Any, any an last honor. thoughts uh, for our, our audience around the world? Or I would just say, follow Jesus, but even more so, enjoy him and learn to enjoy him. And if you don't feel that way at first, that's fine. Just be honest. Meet God where you're at, not where you wish you were. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that so many of us find prayer boring is because we don't actually pray. We edit. 
we edit our feelings and our thoughts about God and we just give God the stuff that we feel like is okay and right and pious. Don't do that. That's a way to kill your prayer life and kill your enjoyment of the Father's company. Just wherever you're at, doubt, you're not even sure if you believe in God, burned off by the church and turned off and angry and bitter, bored and you think prayer is boring, over busy, stressed out, anxious, you don't feel like you have the time to do any of this stuff, you pray for an hour every morning, just wherever you're at, meet God there. If all you can do is take 10 minutes, the beginning of your day, no phone, no TV, not even TBN, as great as it is, turn everything off and just sit there. For, if all you have is 10 minutes, just breathe and meet God where you're actually at. Just pray, meaning just tell God where you're at. If it's doubt, if it's anger, if it's joy, if it's gratitude, if it's anxiety, if it's peace, just tell Him, where, meet God where you're at and let God move you forward. That's what it means to follow Jesus and discover healing and life and enjoyment of the Father's company along the way. John Comer, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for joining us on Praise. It's been awesome being with you. We want you to know no matter what, God loves you. He continues to believe in you, that there is no past or tragedy that God can't redeem. He is on your side 100% and Jesus invites you into that way. Thank you for joining us today. We love you. Have a great day. God bless you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBN's Praise Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and consider leaving a review. We look forward to having you join us back here next week.